KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday, February 25th. What San Diego Unified needs to change for Black students, we'll have that next. But first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County officials say they're expanding access to the COVID-19 vaccine soon. Starting on Saturday, school and child care workers, food and agricultural workers, and non-medical emergency responders will be eligible to get vaccines. Officials say they'll prioritize K-12 schools in zip codes hardest hit by the pandemic. The San Diego section of the California Interscholastic Federation says it will comply with a recent court order allowing youth sports to resume countywide. The CIF says whether sport activities will actually resume depends on the individual school's ability to meet COVID-19 protocols. The announcement on Wednesday follows a ruling from a VISTA judge to allow youth sports to resume so long as they follow COVID-19 protocols of professional and collegiate sports. 27 dogs from Texas have arrived at the Helen Woodward Animal Center today, seeking warmer weather and a second chance at a forever home. The dogs survived record-breaking winter storms at a shelter otherwise left uninhabitable. Workers for the transport service Concho Valley Paw Shelters braved the icy roads and were able to get the dogs out and bring them to the sunny Golden State. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. In the past decade, the San Diego Unified School District has made significant progress in increasing graduation and college readiness rates for black students. But there's room for more progress. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spoke with students, families, and experts about the black student experience at San Diego Unified and what needs to change when students return to a post-pandemic classroom. Um, I grew up here in southeast San Diego for a majority of my life. Makfera Abdullahi is the daughter of Ethiopian immigrants who came to the United States as refugees during the Somali Civil War. Abdullahi says growing up, her parents had high expectations for her, but she quickly realized that her teachers didn't have the same expectations. So that's when I started to realize, like, I know they won't see me the same, so I needed to start doing better in school and really take it serious. And if I didn't, they'd probably just see me as, you know, that other Black student who doesn't care about school, doesn't want to listen, and, you know, just to reinforce those stereotypes. She said her middle school experience was especially discouraging. She and her Black peers felt isolated and constantly monitored. But she said she toughened up when she got to Morse High School. So I tried I tried my hardest, talked to my counselors, you know, put me in those AP classes. I don't care if you won't let me, I'm going to keep trying. So that's when I really started getting into school. But the experience was definitely not easy. Today, she's in her first year at UC San Diego, majoring in political science. Abdullahi's path was difficult, but she's part of a positive trend at San Diego Unified. 
Pedro Noguera, the dean of the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California, led a 2019 study of the district that found it had increased both graduation and college readiness rates for black students. I'd say that's a really powerful uh, factor because that is bearing on college eligibility rates. So you've seen that the, the, the number of black students who are eligible for admission to Cal State and the University of California go up. And that is, I think, not an insignificant um, data point. While graduation and college readiness rates have increased during outgoing Superintendent Cindy Martin's tenure, results for school discipline have been mixed. The suspension rates for black students dropped from 10.1% in 2013-2014, Martin's first year, to 8.6% in 2018-2019. But black students are still more than three times as likely to be suspended than their white peers, according to the most recent data. Luana Richmond, a former school board candidate from Southeast San Diego, said it's a sign that black students are still seen as outsiders at schools. It's when you think of a child as your neighbor, your community member, your family member, they could be your child. Um, the way that you see them is, is different than if you see them as like those kids. But as the district begins to bring students back to campuses, both Richmond and Noguera see an opportunity to rebuild trust between educators and students from all marginalized backgrounds. Noguera said overemphasizing academics and making up for what's been referred to as learning loss is not the path to an equitable post-pandemic public school system. I would prioritize relationships. I would prioritize bringing some joy to learning the arts music so that kids want to be in school. And then I would really focus on getting kids engaged as learners before we focus narrowly on assessment. San Diego Unified has already taken steps in that direction. Shortly following this summer's protests for racial justice, the district revised its grading policy to prioritize mastery of material over test scores. The district also revised its discipline policy for middle school and invested in training for its police department. Abdullahi, the UC San Diego student, says she's hoping her younger siblings might get to experience a more inclusive curriculum and school environment. There's still so much history that needs to be covered and so much history that Black high school students deserve to learn about their own people. And within APUS history, you know, they just brush over, you know, the major topics, Jim Crow, slavery, you know. So um, there's so there's so much more work that needs to be done, but it's it's a step in the right direction for now. And that reporting from KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. Local state lawmakers are proposing an expansion to emergency paid sick leave, family leave, and medical leave for workers in California. KPBS's John Carroll says the pandemic is behind the new legislation. It is a terrible conundrum faced by workers in California every day, made worse by the pandemic. You feel sick, but you've used up all your sick leave. You live paycheck to paycheck, so you have no choice but to go to work. We need emergency care for our workers. That's clear. We Democratic San Diego Assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez is partnering with Democratic Los Angeles Assemblymember Wendy Carrillo on a bill that would extend the current three sick days required by state law to two weeks. If passed in its current form, the coverage would be retroactive to January 1st of this year and would expire on September 30th, 2021. Today's virtual news conference featured a worker at a Los Angeles McDonald's restaurant. Supporters of extending sick leave say Bartolome Perez's story drives home the importance of getting the legislation passed into law as soon as possible. 
Muchos de nosotros con... And proof is that in December, on December 16th, a coworker of mine got sick on the job and employers did not tell us until the 20th. They waited four days because they didn't want to quarantine any of us. And as a result, I became ill on the 21st. Perez says his wife, children, and grandchildren then all got COVID. This is about the safety of our community and actually protecting small businesses. What we know is this, workers who don't have paid sick leave, especially undocumented workers or workers who are very vulnerable, will go to work anyway if they're not feeling well. They have to. And often this will create a workplace outbreak. It'll affect customers. And when there is a workplace outbreak, that means higher costs for the businesses. They often have to shut down. Workers had been covered for extended sick leave under legislation passed last spring by Congress. But those protections expired on December 31st of last year. Gonzalez says they're making some minor changes to the bill right now. She says she hopes to have it on the governor's desk in the next week or two. And that story from KPBS's John Carroll. Researchers at UC San Diego are starting human testing for a process that could stop or slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Mark Tuzinski is a professor of neuroscience at UCSD. He says he and his colleagues have been studying this kind of gene therapy for 15 years, and tests on animals have shown great promise. We're using a gene therapy to introduce a protein into the brain that in animal studies prevents the death of cells in the brain and promotes the formation of new connections between cells. So in animals, when we do this, we see a reduction in loss of cells and we actually see an improvement in memory function. He says his study group is now recruiting test subjects for their upcoming clinical trial. An audit of California's top climate agency released on Tuesday found regulators overstated reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. From KQED's science desk, Kevin Stark reports. In a new report, California's auditor said the state is in danger of failing to meet its 2030 climate goal of reducing greenhouse gases by 40 percent. A key problem is that emissions from the transportation sector have increased in recent years. The state's air board is in charge of implementing climate policy, including managing incentives for electric vehicles to reduce planet warming gases. But the agency is not gathering enough data about that program and doesn't know how the incentives are impacting Californians' consumer behavior, the report found. The air board says it will be making a range of recommendations to improve its climate accounting. And that reporting from KQED's Kevin Stark. Coming up, a new study found that when black doctors care for black babies, the mortality rate for those infants is cut in half. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A new Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity has just been established at the University of Minnesota. It's one of several efforts around the country to get to the root of implicit racial attitudes in healthcare. Dr. Rachel Hardiman is the founding director of the new Anti-Racism Research Center. A study she co-authored was profiled in the Washington Post earlier this year. It found that when black doctors care for black babies, the mortality rate for those infants is cut in half. Dr. Hardiman spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh about her study. Here's that interview. Can you tell us why you believe a Center for Anti-Racism Research in Healthcare is needed? I believe the Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity is needed when we look at health outcomes, whether it's Black maternal health to COVID-19. We have a lot of work to do to ensure that everyone in our communities has the opportunity to be healthy and live a healthy um, life. Now, a study that you co-authored was profiled in the Washington Post earlier this year. It found that when Black doctors care for Black babies after birth, the mortality rate for those infants is cut in half. That is a dramatic statistic. And I'm wondering, what questions does a finding like that open up to you? Well, I think it opens up a lot of different questions for, and I think it also depends on who's asking them, right? So, you know, we certainly got a lot of feedback from clinicians who were, you know, concerned that we were suggesting that they themselves as individual clinicians are biased or racist. And that's not the case at all. That's not what these findings suggest. What they suggest is that clinicians are working within a system that has not grappled with the impact of racism, um, both throughout our society, but also within our um, healthcare delivery institutions. So there's a long history of how racial inequity has manifested itself um, in healthcare delivery from, you know, James Marion Sims, the father of modern gynecology, who used Black enslaved women to perfect his surgical techniques, um, to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, and many others in between. And so when we think about the failure of our healthcare systems to really grapple with this history, we have to understand that we have work to do to both train our clinicians and our providers to understand the history and understand how it shows up within the way that they're interacting with patients from um, Black and Brown communities. Now, it's been known for many years that the mortality rate for African-American mothers was much higher than for white mothers. Do you think the reason that has not been seriously addressed is because society tends to blame Black women for the problem? Absolutely. So what we've seen when it comes to Black maternal mortality is this victim-blaming narrative, where we say, well, Black moms are um, having babies at older ages, they're um, they're fatter, you know, they're overweight, they don't have a good diet, they're not accessing prenatal care. And we use these narratives to, to create sort of this idea that um, Black moms are to blame for their health outcomes. But in reality, what we're seeing um, and what we see in the data is that when you control for all of those things, like high-risk behavior like tobacco use or when we control in our models for um, access to prenatal care and also for socioeconomic status, we see that these inequities persist. So regardless of if 
a black woman has um, has the highest degree she could possibly earn and is a physician to um, a black woman who um, has a high school diploma. They're still at greater risk than a white woman who has um, not graduated from high school. Now, your research finds that disparities for black mothers don't start with the first prenatal doctor visit, but rather with a lifetime of stressors. Sure. So the stressors are everything from, you know, implicit bias. So those unconscious or automatic biases and microaggressions that um, Black people um, and Black women are experiencing in their day-to-day interactions, whether it's at work, at their children's school, or whatever it may be. And then there's also the structural racism factors. So, you know, we see a history of redlining, which has dictated where many Black people um, can live, right, and where they can afford to buy a home. It certainly has impacted intergenerational wealth or the inability to accumulate wealth. Um, And then we also see that it's showing up in healthcare delivery. Um, You know, Black birthing people are reporting not being heard when they're talking to their um, physician or not feeling respected during those clinical encounters. Another angle that my research has looked at is policing and um, the impact of police violence or even just being living in a community that's over-policed. And that presence is associated with a um, greater risk of preterm birth. It seems from what you're saying that the medical profession alone can't address these structural and systemic racial disparities. So what kind of approach is it going to take? So that's an excellent question. And I completely agree. I I think that... um, you know, this isn't the healthcare system problem alone. Um, we have to be, what we know is that health, optimal health requires um, that all of the social context um, for someone's life is addressed. And the work that I do as an anti-racist researcher is really understanding um, and allowing for and making space for the voice of those who are most impacted by these disparities and these inequities to be the loudest voice in, um, in the decision-making process. That was Dr. Rachel Hardiman, founding director of the new Anti-Racism Research Center at the University of Minnesota. Common Ground Theater's mission is to produce classics and new works by and about people of African descent. This weekend, the San Diego Theater Company is showcasing A Day of Absence by Douglas Turner Ward, who died last Saturday. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando says his death is a sad note on which to close out Black History Month, but the production celebrates the playwright's legacy. Douglas Turner Ward's A Day of Absence is a satire about an imaginary southern town where all the black people disappear for a day, and their absence wreaks havoc for the white community. John, played by Leon Alexander Matthews, wakes up to find his black maid missing. Walked up to the shack, knocked on the door, didn't get no answer, hollered, Lola, Lola, not a thing. Went around the side. Picked in the window, nobody stirred. Next door, nobody there. Crossed over the side of the street, banged on five, six other doors. Not a colored person could be found. Not a man, neither woman or child. Not even a black dog could be seen, smelled or heard for blocks around. In a reversal of the old minstrel shows, the black actors here perform in whiteface. Matthew says Ward's death tinges the show with sadness, but the production pays tribute to the playwright's ability to tackle issues that still resonate today. Even though this was written back in uh, 1965, 
it is so relevant to what is going on in 2021. And, you know, by then we thought, you know, racism and, and just the way that America thinks and the way that America processes things, we thought by now it should be men and women of any color or race or background or religion should be on equal ground, but they're not. A Day of Absence is available online through Common Ground Theater's website, but only through the weekend. And that was KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.